I think it's really important to be responsive and also to be able to give that timely feedback. There is nothing worse than having, you know, sent a chapter off to somebody and then arrive for a supervision and find that they haven't even looked at it. You've been listening to Professor Meredith Temple-Smith, who's the Director of Research Training at the Department of General Practice at the University of Melbourne, and she's been talking about being a supervisor. You're listening to Cheers with Peers from the Primary Care Collaborative Cancer Clinical Trials Group, PC4, who supports the development of high-quality cancer research in primary care. Welcome to Cheers with Peers. This is a podcast from PC4 that helps mid-career researchers write their own definition of success. I'm Dr Jennifer McIntosh, a mid-career researcher working on cancer in primary care research and implementation science. In today's episode, you'll hear from Professor Meredith Temple-Smith. What makes a great supervisor? How can you, as a mid-career researcher, model yourself on being an effective supervisor, particularly if you've never experienced it yourself? One of the challenges of becoming a senior researcher is actually learning how to be a principal supervisor and how to make that step. So we're going to ask Meredith Temple-Smith, who is a super supervisor, about how she's done that and how we might do that. So welcome, Meredith, to Cheers with Peers. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Jenny. Can you tell me a little bit about your career trajectory? I was actually a very poor student. I failed very many subjects in my first year of university and my second year of university, as it turns out, which was done at a different place. And through my entire undergraduate degree, I really didn't know what I wanted to be. And it wasn't really until I did my Master's of Public Health that I suddenly found something I loved and I began to be really fantastic at that kind of research. By the time I found this out, I actually was already the mother of three small children. So I'm one of those people who actually did a doctorate while I had a young family. And in lots of ways, I think that actually taught me to be a good supervisor, but also was really a bit of a key to my success because I'd spent quite a long time being a research assistant before I even embarked on doing my Master's of Public Health. I had a lot of research experience in working for other people, and I understood a lot about research, and I'd made lots of networks with other researchers in the area in which I was interested. So when I came to do my PhD, I actually was already connected with people. The thing I didn't have, of course, though, was time. The topic of my PhD had to be very, very focused. Was your first research that you led, did you do a research project in your MPH or was the first research that you led your PhD? I did a a project as part of my MPH and that was an interesting project. It was partly historical, a medical history project. And when the time came for it to be evaluated, it was sent to one person who worked in public health and one person who was a historian. And in fact, the historian slammed it and said it was an appalling piece of work, whereas the person who worked in medical history (laughs) thought it it was quite a good piece of work. And that was actually the first lesson that I had that, you know, different disciplines have different ideas about what makes good research. That was a really good learning for me, but it also made me very nervous about taking the next step and and doing something more. But if you're going to look at things from a jigsaw approach, you're going to look at things from different kinds of angles, you actually need to make sure that you have those experts commenting on your work. That was your first experience of supervision and multidisciplinary research. And then when you went to do your PhD, you had two supervisors, I think, didn't you? Mm, And were they from different disciplines? They were. Yes, indeed they were. So one was uh, much more in uh, social research and one was a a medical practitioner who worked in epidemiology. And they each brought extremely different 
perspectives, which was in lots of ways very helpful. I didn't see either of them very much because, you know, I was at home with small kids. But the thing that I remember (laughs) the most, and people will laugh when they hear this, is when I'd finally done my first draft, I was so proud of what I'd done. It seemed like such a miracle that I had managed to, you know, write all these thousands of words. And I gave it to both of my supervisors and I looked forward to getting their feedback. And when I went to see each of them separately, they both said the same thing. They said, everything is kind of here, but it is so boring. I was so sad because I felt like it was a, it was a baby <laughs> to me as well. It's like someone saying, you've got a really ugly baby there. And my main supervisor said to me, look, just take three months off. Don't look at it. Don't think about it. And then come back and read it afresh. And I did that. And I could see that they were both completely right. And I knew I had to find some way of linking the information and making it much more interesting. So with that experience of supervision, what other things did you learn about being a supervisor from your supervisors? One was that, you know, sometimes I would go and talk to one supervisor and they would come up with some fantastic ideas and I'd go and talk to the other supervisor and they would say, no, that's ridiculous, don't go down that way. And then I'd think, well, what am I supposed to do? I'm in the middle here. And then sometimes I would talk to one supervisor and then I'd go back a month later and they'd say, why did you do that? You know, and I'd say, well, you said to do that in the last meeting. And they'd say, well, I don't remember that. So, I mean, the importance of keeping extremely good notes was one of the key things I I learned to actually document every decision you make and why you decided not to go down a certain path. Because I think, you know, some months later, you might pop up into your head again and you think, well, why did I go down that path? And then you've got everything written down. So I think that's one really critical thing. But the other thing I learned was the importance of timely feedback and being able to give students a quick answer to a question. And I always say this to my students now, I don't mind if you're struggling with something and you really just need a quick answer. Don't sit on it for a week until you see me. Call me, send me a text. But I think sometimes as a student, there is some basic thing that you really need a quick answer to. And once you can get that answer, then you can move on and do a whole lot of other things. But you're held up by not being sure of which way to go. And I hate people feeling that level of indecision because I I felt that quite often. So I think able to be responsive and also to be able to give that timely feedback. There is nothing worse than having, you know, sent a chapter off to somebody and then arrive for a supervision and find that they haven't even looked at it and they say, talk me through it. Well, that's no help at all. So I think that if a supervisor hasn't, for whatever reason, had time to read something by the meeting, they should actually email the student and say, I haven't had time to read this. Can we reschedule the meeting? Lisa Delpit says warm demanders expect a great deal of their students, convince them of their own brilliance and help them to reach their potential in a disciplined and structured environment. There's different types of leaders that are called like the technocrat, the elitist, the sentimentalist and the warm demander. And this is a sort of a matrix of being sort of demanding and warm lenient and having some degree of professional distance. Now, I know you quite well and I have co-supervised with you and I've learned a lot of my own supervising techniques from you. And I would describe you as a warm demander. I definitely can see some elements of myself in this. And I think part of the reason is also because So the truth of the matter is sometimes I end up supervising students and I don't know a huge amount about what they're doing or about their research method. So I have to make them believe in themselves. So all I can do is to say to the student, look, that sounds really interesting, but you're going to have to convince me why will that be good. So then the student knows that they also have to come up with a reasoning for why this is going to work well. 
this is the other thing is that I often say to PhD students at the beginning, I'm actually going to learn much more from you than you will learn from me. But what I can do is to give you confidence and I'll help you every step of the way. You know, maybe that is part of being a a warm demand. It's a kind of a shared journey. You don't expect the student to do absolutely everything themselves, but you're learning and applying a kind of critical eye to what it is they're, they're doing. But it may not be entirely the best critical eye. And if it's something that's so completely outside of my comfort zone, I will find somebody else who can comment. So I don't expect the student to do that either. So... Yeah, so I guess in lots of ways I do relate to, to aspects of that, but I kind of feel it's more to do with my own ignorance perhaps than it is to do with any particular strategy. With a mid-career researcher who might be wanting to sort of take that step to be a principal researcher, do you remember when you had your first student as a principal supervisor? I think the thing is you have to really make sure that people learn by an apprenticeship model. It's not something that you can do just in theory. So the very first student that I had any participation in in terms of supervision was a PhD student. Uh, So I knew how to problem solve very much on the ground, but I hadn't really understood at that point, you know, how you needed to be able to do these things from afar. But also being part of those supervisory meetings that the student was having, and she was doing them online, you know, I was given a little bit of responsibility to make sure that everything went through on the, in terms of the practical aspects of it. But I wasn't given the entire responsibility of that student in terms of writing up or the theoretical perspective or anything like that. So I was partly a witness to what was going on, but I was definitely also an apprentice. And that was once again a multidisciplinary thesis. I was seeing how other people did it in in different kinds of ways. But I think really when you're learning to become a supervisor, you just really have to practice on shorter, smaller research projects with more junior students. And I think being able to supervise or co-supervise, you know, little projects that honour students might do or they are such wonderful teaching for mid-career researchers because you know those projects don't go on for very long you don't have to wait for years to see the potential outcome so I think I'd done lots and lots of things like that before I ended up becoming a principal supervisor and of course in order to become a principal supervisor at any university you need to have actually been a co-supervisor from the beginning to the end of a student already and I think that is a, a really important thing to see how it's done well or alternatively done badly because sometimes as a co-supervisor, a junior co-supervisor, you can see how things are done extremely badly. I think it teaches you then to be able to kind of speak up on behalf of the student. It just teaches you all kinds of skills. A lot of them are around negotiation. How do you know if you're being an effective supervisor and how do you know if you're being a bad supervisor? Well, that's a really interesting question because even I think when you're being, when you think you're being a good supervisor, students can still look stressed. My personal view is that if a student comes into my office looking stressed, I want their stress to be at least partly relieved before they leave my office. I think helping them manage their stress and having them know that they can come to you for anything. And it doesn't actually have to be just directly related to the PhD. I mean, I I really feel that you have to know your students. You have to understand a bit about their personal life. I expect them to, to know me too. I want us to be lifelong friends in lots of ways. And if you are stressing them because you're not giving timely feedback or when they walk in the door and they and you think oh my gosh I didn't read this or I didn't comment on that abstract I would think that's being a bad supervisor how to tell whether or not you're being a great supervisor I I think that's 
difficult to know until they're finished. And then, of course, by the time they've finished their PhD, they're just so relieved to be over it. They'd probably say even a bad supervisor was a good one. Yes, that's true. And also Mm. you're chair of a lot of the meetings and the confirmations and the review process as well. So I guess then you would also have the opportunity to see that. I have to say that I think chairing advisory committee meetings is, is a fantastic way to learn about supervision. And I don't think I ever saw myself as being a good supervisor actually until I began chairing some of those meetings and hearing and seeing how different students interact with different supervisors. You also kind of realise that some people are very kind of protocol driven um, in terms of timelines and what the university expects of students and other people really let their students have a very free reign in a way that I would be kind of quite anxious about. So I would also encourage any uh, mid-career researchers to try to be part of an advisory committee. I mean, it might be that they can only comment on a very small aspect of method or they might have some history of also doing similar kinds of research. But I think even if you only either have a very tiny percentage of supervision or you're just making some commentary, I think it is a wonderful way to learn to see how other people interact in those kinds of meetings. I think the timeline is one of the key issues that when I was supervising at the very beginning, I don't think I was so strict about making sure that students remembered what their timeline looked like over the three years. But I do think it's very important to kind of constantly revise and go back to that timeline and and see how you're progressing against it. And that's one thing I do notice a lot of students don't pull out their timeline perhaps often enough. How do you manage and how do you encourage and how do you elicit really honest and authentic feedback from students as a supervisor? Look, I think this is very difficult unless you become a friend to some extent. I can't imagine myself being in a position where I didn't know a supervisor very well and trying to say to them, I don't like the way you're supervising me or I I need something else. I think it's always very important for students to remember that they are bringing something very precious to a supervisor. It's not a one-way street. Most students feel when they undertake their studies that they are the lowest of the pecking order. But of course, if we didn't have students, we couldn't drive our research forward. I mean, students come up with fantastic new ideas. They take our research in ways that we've often never even thought of before. And I think that students need to remember that they are bringing value. And so therefore, they are doing their supervisor a favour if they can really say to the supervisor, look, I'm finding it really hard to get your attention lately. I mean, I really need to get some commentary on this. If you can't do it, what what can we work out to make this work together. But I do think in order to be able to say that kind of thing, you need to feel like you've got some power and you need to feel part of the team. You know, for students who who don't have that relationship, I can see that that would be very challenging. Sometimes it is easier for me to say to another supervisor, look, you know, you seem to be really stressed lately. You know, are you able to manage your students? Do you need some extra help with something? Can I offer any advice? And, you know, sometimes that's another strategy that can work. Thinking back to yourself as a mid-career researcher, and when did you really realise that you were a more senior researcher? You know, there were a number of, there were probably lots of different points, and, and some of the points were probably more recent rather than earlier on. But I do think the point at which I became the principal supervisor for an international student, and I felt like I had the power to make almost all the major decisions or to direct her 
I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, you know, this is a really big step. And it was kind of a bit scary, but that's one of the reasons you want to have co-supervisors and an advisory panel because you can then say, um, you know, is this going to work? So Meredith, do you have one takeaway message that you might give to mid-career researchers? Look, I think teaming up is something that's really helpful. I think if as a junior researcher you can find somebody else in your department who you really admire and respect who might be a little bit more senior than you, I think that's a really helpful way of understanding a little bit more. Being an apprentice to somebody is really important. And I think the other thing too is that Often in the busyness of everyday supervision, I think sometimes supervisors forget that they also ought to be patrons for their students so that they should be introducing them at conferences to other academics, you know, from other places. They should be thinking about their job prospects. So I think it's about an attitude that you show to your students. And I think that junior career researchers need to find a more senior person that they can befriend or be colleague, whatever that word might be, who has the same attitude to people as they do. And I think that that's how they can learn to be a good supervisor. So what podcasts have you been listening to? I discovered when I was away in the US, Massachusetts General Hospital has some amazing podcasts and I have really been enjoying listening to them. Thank you so much, Meredith, for coming in. It's Cheers with Piers, so cheers to you, Meredith. Thank you, Jenny. That was Professor Meredith Temple-Smith. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Cheers with Piers, produced by PC4. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing info at pc4tg.com.au or keep in touch via Twitter where you'll find us at PC4TG. Don't forget to visit PC4's website, pc4tg.com.au. 